Well, this morning we are in Psalm 27 as we work through the book of Psalms over the summer months. And if you look at the back of your bulletin, you'll see today that I've included my outline uh, for how we're going to work through the text, and hopefully that helps you follow along and stay on track and not get lost as we work through Psalm 27 together. I don't always have a clear or obvious outline as we work through different texts of the Scriptures And that's a number of reasons for that. Sometimes we're in very small passages. Sometimes we're in very long chapters. Uh, It doesn't always work out to have a clean outline, but today we do. And I was thinking about this this week because it just, it seemed kind of obvious this week. But my goal in preaching is not to give you like a really clean, catchy, fluid outline, right? I mean, that can be helpful, I was just talking to Joey this week. One of the biggest stressors of my life is coming up with sermon titles. <laughs> it sounds really dumb, but I'm serious. Sometimes it's just like, I don't know what to call this. It's the Bible. Uh, but my goal in preaching is not just to outline or to get main points. My goal is to expose the meaning of the text. That's what exposition means, to expose something, right? And as regards to scriptures, we call it expositional preaching because it exposes the meaning of the text. And of course, in the process of exposition, there are a number of other God-ordained blessings that come with that. We get to see the beauty and the glory of God. We see Jesus all over the pages of Scripture. We are motivated and inspired to worship God for how he's revealed himself. But none of that would happen unless we understand the text unless we know what is going on in the scripture. That's why here at Grace, we preach expository sermons. We expose the meaning of the text. And sometimes that means we have an outline, sometimes it's verse by verse, sometimes it's thematic, but regardless of how we approach each text in the scripture, the goal is the same. We want to understand the word of God. We are Grace Bible Church. That's very intentional in the name. And I was just reminded this week, I don't even know why it came to my mind, but I, I want to be committed to the text. It's not my goal to be super polished, to use big words, to be profound and say something new. It's nothing new. I just want to be faithful to this book. And that means exposing the meaning of the text. That means exposition. So that's what we're doing here today. And I've given you the outline, so you have no excuses. (laughs) There will be a quiz at the end of this. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 27, and we will read this together. As you're turning there, I'll just mention a couple of things that we're going to see here. Uh, What we're going to see is David expressing his confidence in God. This comes out a few different ways, but that is the main kind of overarching theme of this chapter is that David has confidence in God because of how God has revealed himself to David. So we're going to deal with that, and then I want to close by asking the so what kind of question. So in other words, when we apply this psalm, should we just say, well, David had confidence in God, I guess we should just be like David. Is that the right way to close this out? So we're going to ask that question when we come to the end of this chapter. But for now, please follow along, open your Bibles. We will read Psalm 27, starting in verse 1. A psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me up high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. And I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me and turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your ways, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Father, we approach your word now this morning, and we ask that you would reveal it to us. Yes, it is my privilege and my job to preach and to expose meaning, but only you can truly enlighten us. Only you can show us what is in your word. And so, God, I ask that this morning, would you use me as your mouthpiece, as it were, to open this text, to discover its meaning, to be able to live the Christian life in light of what you have written down here through your servant David. And we ask for your help. Lord, we are so dependent upon you for everything. Every breath, every heartbeat, every movement of our body comes from you. And it's no different when we come to your word. We are totally dependent upon your grace. So would you work now through your spirit? Would you open our understanding we pray with the psalmist, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wondrous things in your law. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Before we jump into this first section, I want to point out something that's happening in the first verse. If you look at verse 1, what we have is not simply David opening by saying, I'm not going to be afraid, I'm not going to fear. Rather, he says... The Lord is this or that, therefore I will not fear. Or the Lord is my strength, my stronghold, then I will not be afraid. You, you catch what he's doing there? We've talked about this several times over the past couple of years. But whenever God gives us a command, whenever he calls us to a certain attitude or action or behavior or whatever it is, it is never disconnected from what he has already done or how he has revealed himself. You tracking with me? So using this as an example, this is a great example in verse 1. 
that David doesn't just say, well, I've decided I'm not going to be afraid. His lack of fear, his confidence in God is a response to God's revelation of who he is. So whenever God calls us to something, whenever there is instruction for God's people in the Bible, it is predicated on the fact that God has already revealed himself as the enabler. Okay? And to more or less clear degrees, but that is always the case. God never just gives command without saying, I'm going to enable you to do this. I'm going to strengthen you to do this. I'm going to reveal who I am so that you have the confidence to actually do the things that I'm calling you to do. Isn't that great? It's a great reminder here in verse 1 that our response, that's exactly what it should be, is a response to God's revelation. So I just don't want you to get the idea that it's just a matter of doing the right things. We talked last week, it is important to do the right things, but we must never disconnect the doing from the revelation of God. And I think that's what's going on here in verse 1, and we're going to see that theme repeated all through the Psalms as we move through. So with that framework in mind, let's jump into our first section, verses 1 through 3, by seeing David's confidence in God. Now the Psalm opens with three different descriptions of who God is, or we could say three ways that God has revealed himself to David or proved himself to David. First, he says that God is his light. God is his light. Now, if we consider for a moment the history of literature, storytelling, that kind of a thing, light and darkness are almost universally representative of what? Good and evil. Right? This, this, this has happened all throughout storytelling history. I just made that word up. But light and darkness are representative of good and evil. We all know the bad guy wears black. Unless you're Batman or Johnny Cash. They both get a pass. But even in scriptures, we read language about light being contrasted with darkness, light representing God and his goodness and his holiness and his purity, darkness representing the work of our enemy, the devil, Satan, and his kingdom and his works. It's this light-darkness thing. Jesus Christ is said to be the light. I'll read you just a couple of texts from John 1. It says, in him, this is in Jesus, was life And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we have this contrast, right, between the good of Christ and his light and the darkness that is unable to overcome him, or 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. So, in other words, God is pure goodness. There's no evil in him. There's no wickedness in him at all. So my question would be, is this the same usage of the word light that David has in mind in Psalm 27? When he says, the Lord is my light, is he just saying that the Lord is his good, his not evil? No, I don't think so. I think what he has in mind here is more light as guidance and revelation the revealing of what is in the darkness. Why, why is darkness so unsettling for us? Why do you get kind of on edge when the lights go off? Because you don't know. I mean, a lot of this is just fear of the unknown. We don't know what is in the dark. 
That's why people don't like to swim in water where you can't see anything, right? You have no idea what's down there. Just as a side note, by the way, just stay out of the water then. Don't, don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. But we do not like darkness because we don't know what's there. So when David comes and he says, the Lord is my light, what he is referring to is God's ability to illuminate to reveal what was formerly in the darkness. Remember all the language we've seen in the last few weeks about David's stability and his foot being placed on firm ground? That is a result of God illuminating the path before him so that he knows where he's going. He can see what is off to the side. He can see what is over there. And he can stay away from that because the Lord is his light. Very similar language in Psalm 119 talking about the word of God when it says... Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is the direction, this is the guidance or the revealing of what was formerly in darkness. So David says, the Lord is my light. Next he says, the Lord is his salvation, his deliverer, that God has rescued David from the hands of his enemies and preserved his life. And because of this light, this revealing, because of the deliverance of God, David can say, whom shall I fear? This is what I was talking about right at the beginning, that God reveals himself to be something or to do something, and as a response to that, David can say, okay, God is my light, God is my salvation, I will not fear. One of the commentaries I was reading on this made an interesting point that when we, just talking physiologically, when we are in the dark, we don't have anything in our body that produces light. Light has to come from an external source to light the way from us. Isn't that interesting? So when David says, God is my light, he means God is the one who reveals the path that I should walk on. And that fits hand in glove with all of this language of direction and instruction and leading that we've been seeing over these past few weeks. Now he changes the metaphor in verse 2 again by saying that the Lord is his stronghold. The Lord is his stronghold, his firm, safe place. This is saying that he is secure with God. Now, a stronghold is a military term that referred to a fort or a structure that was unable to be conquered. If you had to flee somewhere to be safe from an enemy, you went to the stronghold, the place that the enemy could not overrun. So David is saying, God, because of his word, because of his works, because of what he has done, is my stronghold, my safe place. This is the language that David chooses to use when describing how God has revealed himself to David. And this is what gives him such tremendous confidence in God because of what God has done. Now he goes on in verses 2 and 3 and is describing, I think, what is in his mind probably the worst case scenario he can imagine. The worst thing that could happen to him. He talks about evildoers assailing him and eating his flesh. You remember the account of David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 17? Do you remember what Goliath taunted David with? He said, I'm going to clean your clock, and then I'm going to feed your body to the birds and the beasts of the air. Well, birds of the air, beasts of the ground. You get it. Okay, so David has in mind like this utter destruction as a possibility. If you are eaten, if you're consumed, you're done, right? There's, there's no coming back from that. This is worst case scenario. He also envisions an entire army encamped against him. 
Singular, he doesn't say camped against us. I mean, the odds are really bad in this scenario that David is playing out in his head. And then he imagines a war breaking out in Israel and threatening his stability and his confidence and his security. But yet in all of these things, his heart remains steadfast. Why? Because he has military experience and he knows how to handle himself or he has good friends that he knows will come if he gets in trouble? No. Because the Lord is his light, the Lord is his salvation, the Lord is his stronghold. Therefore, the end of verse 3, David has confidence in God because of who God is. Let's look at the next section, verses 4 through 6. We're going to see David's desire for God. David's desire for God. You're going to notice as we move through the psalm that there's kind of a logical progression to what David talks about. And here's what I mean. If If David has unshakable confidence in God, if he is convinced that God is able to do everything that he's promised to do, then doesn't it stand to reason that David would desire to be in the presence of God? That's no surprise to us, right? And that's exactly what he's saying. He wants to dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And you'll notice that David is engaging all of his senses in this. It's not just that he's there It's that he's there, seeing, viewing, touching, feeling, all of these things. He is experiencing the presence of God. And I think it's really interesting. Verse 4 is is really remarkable. Look at verse 4 with me again. One thing I have asked the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, Now, I realize David asked God for other things at times, right? He's not saying this is the only thing I have ever asked. But if if you had one thing to ask God, is this what you would ask for? Would it be enough simply to dwell in the presence of God? David, David doesn't go after the gifts of God, as good as they are and as helpful as they are and as wonderful as they are. He goes straight for the source. He says, I just want to dwell in the presence of God. And gaze upon his beauty. And I just wonder how often we are too distracted by what God can give us and how God can help us and we forget that just being with him is reward enough. This is what Josh was getting at in the call to worship. The Apostle Paul looks at all the gifts of God, all his accolades, all his accomplishments and says, it's not worth anything compared to being with God. Now, David also says that he's going to seek after this. This is not just a passive thing. We're going to talk about that more in the next section. But also notice in verses 4 and 5, the different words that David uses for the dwelling place of God. House, temple, shelter, tent is used twice. Now, these are not different locations, For the dwelling place of God, these are different aspects of the same place. This repetition or this repeated thing is for emphasizing the fact that David wants to be wherever God is. It's kind of like in the Bible when it says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. Those are not four disconnected realities. It's referring to the entirety of the person, right? So kind of the same thing happening here with David as he speaks about the dwelling place of God and his desire to be with God in this place. Now, with David expressing desire to be with God, 
I think this is a good place to stop, and I just want to recognize the almost unspeakable reality that comes to us because of living under the new covenant, and that is the permanent indwelling of the Spirit of God. David is seeking after God. He wants to go where God is because that's how things were set up. You and I, living when we live and because of Christ, we do not have to seek out a physical place to encounter or experience God. We don't have to wait for the right time of the calendar year so that we can make the journey and go to the place and offer a sacrifice and hope that it's acceptable to God. We don't pray the way that David prays when he asks God not to cast him off or forsake him or take his spirit from him because the spirit of God lives in us as a seal and a guarantee of God's continual and eternal presence with us. We saw this last week from Ephesians chapter 2. Right When Paul says that under the new covenant, the people in the church are being built together into what? A dwelling place for God. David would have given his entire kingdom to experience what you and I experience every single day. And that is remarkable. It is really easy, I think, sometimes for us to romanticize history. When I was a kid... I used to always think how great it would be to live in cowboy days, right? Don't act like you've never done that. We do that, right? We romanticize the past. And sometimes when it comes to scriptural or biblical realities, we go, oh man, wouldn't it have been great to live back then and to to see the tabernacle and to do this and to smell that and to whatever do that? We live under a new covenant. We have something far better. Okay, think about some of the words that the New Testament uses for the covenant that you and I live under right now. This is all from Hebrews, by the way. I just wrote down a few. The new covenant is new. It is better. It is greater. It is more clear. It is more excellent. It is faultless. Maybe instead of wishing that we could go back and see what David saw, we should remember what Jesus says. In Matthew 12, 6, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. He's talking about himself. And because of Jesus and his sending of the Spirit into the world, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we experience, we have the presence of God, the same presence of God that David was seeking after in Psalm 27. We have it if you belong to Christ. And I just think this is so important for us to understand the tremendous blessing of living when we live. So be careful that we don't just start to Long after the good old days, we are in the good days, living with the Spirit of God dwelling in us. David longed for this, and because of Jesus, we have it. Isn't that amazing? What an amazing reality. All right. This connection 
of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, the fact that David is desiring to have this experience now leads us into verses 7 to 10 when we see David seeking after God. Now sometimes when we read the Psalms, they are different enough from the rest of the Bible that we don't always connect them with other places in Scripture. So these are what's called poetry, poetical books. And when we read them, it is very different than reading Exodus or Judges or narrative or other places in the Scripture. But we should be careful not to disconnect the Psalms from the rest of the Bible, right? We shouldn't act like this is just a random little Oh, that was an encouraging kind of a thing to read. This is part of the redemptive history of God's people. And I bring this up because the things that David is asking for, the things that he's seeking after here in verses 7 through 10, are not new things. This has been the case for the people of God since the beginning, especially for David as an Israelite, as the king, as God's anointed He would have been very familiar with the law, with the Torah, with the instruction that had been passed down to God's people for generations. And we see this, I think, in verse 8 when he says, You have said, seek my face. Well, how did he know that? Because this is what God had told the people. I'm going to just read a couple of verses from Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is Moses instructing the people, and this is what he says. Deuteronomy 4.27 And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone and work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord, your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or, and here's I think is a really important thing, or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So we see David in Psalm 27 saying, I'm going to seek after your face, God. Don't forsake me. Don't leave me. This is all repeated language that has already been given to the people of Israel. When he says, What he says in Psalm 27, this isn't a new and isolated event. This isn't the first time the people of God have cried out to God. And I think it's really helpful for us to see the Psalms in connection to the rest of the Bible and not just treat them like the coffee mug book where we get inspirational sayings that we can put on things. That's fine if you have that on a coffee mug. I'm just saying it's more than that, okay? And I think there's really good encouragement too for us in verse 9. If you look at verse 9 with me, David says... You who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Do you see what's happening there? You see the structure of what David is saying? You have been my help, so don't cast me off. And I'm going to just summarize what he's saying there in one short sentence. Past faithfulness inspires present confidence. Past faithfulness inspires present confidence. This this might be the most important thing that I say all morning because this is what motivates David and this is what ought to motivate us to look back on the demonstration of God's faithfulness, not even just to you personally, but look at his acts, look at his works, look at what he has done in redemptive history and let that inspire you, let that motivate you 
to trust more and more in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. That's what David's getting at. Oh, you who have been my help, do it again and prove your faithfulness. Now, is that wrong? Is it presumptuous to say to God, I'm in need again and you did it before and I expect that you're going to do it again? Well, I wouldn't have said this was an encouragement if I thought it was wrong, right? No, it is not wrong for us to count on God acting in keeping with his covenant. That's why I read from Deuteronomy chapter 4. The Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant that he made with your fathers. So David knows this and he cries out to God and says, you've done it before. You've proved your faithfulness to me in the past and I want you to do it again. That is not presuming on God. That is faith. Isn't that the essence of faith? Trusting that God is able to do what he has promised to do and building our confidence in God based on what he has already revealed to us? I don't think that's wrong at all. I think that is right and good. It is not a presumption on God to expect that he will act in keeping with his character. Past faithfulness inspires present trust as David seeks after the Lord. Lastly, let's look at this last section of verses 11 to 14. We're going to see, among other things, David waiting for God. David waiting for God. Now, if he desires to be in the presence of God, he has this confidence that motivates him to want to be with God, to be in his presence. If he's seeking after him, then it makes sense that he asks what he asks in verse 11. He asks again for God to instruct him, for God to teach him. And this references the stability that comes from knowing God, right? The more we know about God, the more we come to trust him. And the more we trust him, the more we want to know him. And it creates kind of this cyclical pattern of strength and of confidence and of foundation. He asks the Lord to set him on level ground, despite having false accusation and adversaries all around him. Now, the prayer for level ground is not asking for uh, lack of trouble or the absence of conflict or he wants just comfort or something. The level ground comment means making steady progress on a journey. Okay, that's what the level ground thing means because David's enemies are watching everything he does and they are just waiting for him to trip up so that they can say, hmm, remember when you blew your mouth off about trusting in God and God is so great? Well, you're not doing so good, so where's your God? We talked about this last week. David's concern is not primarily with his own reputation, but he knows that as God's anointed king, as the representative of God's people, God's reputation in some ways is tied up in David. So he asks God, set me on a level path because of my enemies. That just means everyone's watching and they're waiting for me to screw up. Keep me, God. Keep me moving forward. Make me have progress so that your name is not dragged through the mud. Set me on level ground because of my enemies. Now the last two verses, 13 and 14, form what I think is just a very fitting end to this psalm. You can almost imagine the word therefore at the beginning of 14. And here's what I mean. So David again asserts 
his confidence that God will carry him through. Look at verse 13. He says, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Meaning, whatever trial he is in, whatever situation, the false accusations, the attack of his enemies, whatever he's thinking, whatever's going on, he has confidence that God will rescue him or strengthen him through it. He doesn't imagine this ending in his death. He says, I know I'm going to look upon the goodness of God in the land of the living. And of course, as Josh referenced, there is eschatological implications. There is eternal implications. But for now, David has confidence that God will carry him through this and bring him through to the other side. Therefore, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Having confidence in God and in his ability to provide, protect, preserve us doesn't mean that that protection and preservation comes exactly when we think it should come. Has anyone else experienced that? It's been my experience. That many times we pray and we ask God for whatever it is we need. We ask him to prove his faithfulness, to act once again on our behalf, and we end up waiting and waiting and waiting. And God does this for a number of reasons. Maybe it's to teach us dependence. Maybe it's to remove selfishness. Maybe it's to teach us patience. That's a dangerous prayer. But you see, from our perspective, sometimes it seems like God is delayed. And he hasn't done yet what he's promised to do. It's no delay from God's perspective. He is teaching, he is working, he is molding his people. He's causing us to rely on him more. So David has this kind of confidence. He says, I know I'm going to make it through, but it might not be in my timing. Therefore, he gives this advice to his own soul when he says, take courage and wait on the Lord. Now, he had experienced this kind of thing before. Let's give you one example. From the time that David was anointed king by Samuel to the time when he actually took the throne was 15 years. So over the course of 15 years, David knows that God has chosen him as king, that he is going to establish him, 2 Samuel 7, all the promises of his line going on forever and all this kind of thing. He has that in his mind, and yet, in the meantime, he is tending his sheep. He's serving in Saul's court. He's writing psalms. He's running for his life at times because Saul wants to kill him because Saul knows too that he's been anointed king. So in all of that time, in all of that trouble, David finds himself, I'm sure, talking to himself and saying, be confident in God. Wait for the Lord. I know he's going to do it. I know he's going to do it. It is good. It is good to wait for the Lord. It's not fun. It's not always enjoyable. But God's timing is always perfect. I, I don't know what you're waiting for. We're all waiting for something. Resolution of conflict, restoration of a relationship, answer to prayer, whatever it might be. Take courage. Take confidence. Use this last verse of the psalm as an exhortation to your heart. Wait for the Lord. He hasn't forgotten you. He can't forget you. You have his spirit in you. He's there. 
So take heart and wait for him. Now let's say we come to the end of this psalm, which we have, and I say something like, okay, David has confidence in God, he desires God, he seeks after God. As you go into your week this week, be like David. What would that create in you? What would that do if we come through this and I say, okay, be like David? Well, I think a couple of different options are there. It could create despair because maybe you've been trying. You want to have confidence in God. You want to trust him, but it just always seems just out of reach. You can't grasp it. You don't have that firm, settled confidence that David seems to have. So by telling you, we'll just be like David, that's hopeless for you. You've tried that. You know you can't do that. Or maybe it'll produce arrogance. You hear that and you're like, oh, sweet. Yeah, I can do that. I can be like David. I'll have confidence in God and pride gets in there. So what should we say? We come to the end of this psalm, what would be the right application? If I, as your pastor, desire that you and me, we, have confidence in God, that we learn how to desire him and seek him and wait for him, what should we say here? Well, the problem with both of the examples that I just gave is that they are centered on and dependent upon human effort. Right? You despair because of your own inability. Or you have pride because of the arrogance and saying, yeah, I've got this under control. Either way, we're the problem in that equation, right? Not the word of God. It's not David's fault. So I'm going to give you something that is so much better. And I already referenced this. You know what I'm going to say. But we have something that is so much better. We can have a confidence that is so much greater than the confidence David had because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This cannot be overstated. If I were to come to you at the end of this message and say, go out and be like David, it would be like giving you a squirt gun to go up and fight the forest fires. You've been seeing the smoke in the air, you've been smelling that lately, raging up north of us. And for me to do that would be like, here, Take the squirt gun, go, good luck, go fight the fire. When right behind me is a line of tanker trucks with millions of gallons of water just waiting to be deployed there. But no, we're not going to use that. We're going to take this squirt gun. You, you go up there and fight that fire. That would be what it's like for me to tell you to be like David. When the fire trucks of the Holy Spirit are right behind us, ready to enable and initiate and equip us to have confidence in God that goes far beyond your own ability. What a hopeless word if I just tell you, be like him. Now it's not David's fault, and it's not wrong to be like David. We should emulate his kind of behavior, but... We have to understand that this is not dependent on you. Because of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of the Father, he sends the Holy Spirit so that every one of you who has faith in Jesus Christ has God with you. And he will enable you 
to have the kind of confidence that can carry you through the waiting, through the trial, through the loss, whatever it is, you can have confidence in God because of the presence of his Holy Spirit with us. So my word to you as we close this sermon is not do better. It is not be like David. It is rejoice in the fact that we live under the new covenant and have the Spirit of God empowering us. Let's pray. Oh God, what hope we should have, what confidence we should have as we consider all that you have done. And we thank you. I thank you, Lord, for Christ and for his coming in our stead and for doing what he did and living how he lived and dying how he died so that he could send us the spirit who convicts us of sin and regenerates our heart and gives us the ability to trust in you. And so, Father, help us never forget all that you have done on our behalf. And when we find ourselves weak, when we find ourselves in trouble, when we find ourselves just not knowing what to do, would you call to mind the fact that we have your presence with us? And would we stop and gaze upon your beauty? Would we dwell in your presence and find our strength and our comfort there? Oh God, we thank you. And I pray that none of us would leave here relying on our own strength, but that we would celebrate the fact that you have sent your spirit into the world. And would you help us to live like this, turn away from ourselves, and to trust fully in you. So we give you thanks, and we give you praise, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.